So who do we trust, huh? Like always, me and Dee. Welcome to Me and Thee and Three, a Starsky and Hutch fan podcast. I'm your host, Rachel. I'm Monica. And I'm Jeff. And today we're joined by Pat, who writes under the name D.P. Patricks. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. When did you start watching Starsky and Hutch? What was the date of the premiere of the pilot? <laughs> um, I haven't looked it up today, but that was when I started watching Starsky and Hutch. Spring of 1975. Wow. I wasn't, I wasn't in grade school or high school or even college. I was 32 years old, the same age as Paul and David. So I was a, I was an adult. Um, I was out on my own. I had a successful business and I wasn't looking for an obsession, (laughs) but I found, I found one. So the pilot made a big impact on you? What's bigger than big? (laughs) Enormous? Enormous. Good. Yeah. It affected me like nothing I had ever seen because apparently I had been looking for a strong male bonding partnership for years. I had loved, oh, guys, you're not going to know these names, but you can Google them. There was a series back in the 60s called Laramie. Two men, Western, happened to be blonde and dark, and I loved that series. Then there was Route 66, blonde and dark. Uh, I loved Emergency. Uh, I loved a show called Combat. And then there was Star Trek. Let's all remember Star Trek, TOS. <laughs> and that was the, the best anybody had offered us to that point. Then came Starsky and Hutch. And... It was like nothing I'd ever seen. And And I really, really wanted it to be picked up and go to series. And it did. And I was thrilled. You loved the pilot so much that it compelled you to get a job in Hollywood. Not from the pilot. I loved the pilot so much, I really, truly hoped it would go to series. And when it did, I placed myself in front of my television set once a week and made sure I never missed an episode and was thrilled again with the way these two guys built on what I thought I had seen in the pilot. Yeah, they really, they were there for each other. They, they did things as unheard of at the time. If you will remember in Savage Sunday, they are at the old folks home and interviewing, oh, I can't remember their names now, but they'll come to me. And Starsky is sitting in an armchair and, Hutch sits down on the arm of the chair next to Starsky. What? Excuse me? That doesn't happen on television. He either would not sit down at all, or he'd sit in another chair. He certainly wouldn't sit on his partner's chair. I'd never seen that before. And each episode after that showed me something 
I'd never seen before. And then came the sixth, fourth episode. We didn't really know these guys. Hutch was a white knight, do anything for his partner. And I have to try and explain how I was brought up. Um, Middle class, middle America, white bread. I didn't know any drug addicts. But my upbringing had told me and convinced me that drug addicts were simply weak people. They didn't have the courage or the spine to resist this whatever it was they were shooting up. And I'm watching this episode thinking, okay, well, they're going to pump Hutch full of this stuff, but he's never going to give up Jeannie. He's Hutch. He's going to fight this off. And Starsky's going to find him and everything's going to be okay. And guess what? It didn't happen that way. Hutch is there on the floor. And by the time he's on the floor begging them not to leave him, I'm on the floor too. Literally. I'm on the floor crying my eyes out. And then we go upstairs to Huggy's apartment and Starsky climbs on the bed. He pulls Hutch into his arms. He rubs his neck. He rubs his shoulders. Starsky's practically crying. And I'm dissolved, absolutely dissolved. With the fix, I became, pun intended, hooked. From that night on, I became obsessed with finding out whether or not this relationship was real. Because I'd seen it so many times before. I'd been looking for really strong male partnership roles and thought I'd found it. And here I was with, oh my God, this, to me, feels real. Then we came to shootout, and then we came to coffin for Starsky, and I'm beside myself with having to know whether or not these guys really do care for each other. So I went to California, and I talked my way onto a bunch of television show sets just to find out if it was real. And I managed to get over to Fox and walked onto the stage 25 and found out it was. It was real. And I came back to Washington, D.C., and I closed up my life, and I packed up my furniture and all my artwork, and I drove myself to California and became a peripheral part of the show. That is just, like, the most ambitious and determined and amazing story. (laughs) Okay, now you have to let me go back and modify that a little bit because, as I said at the very beginning, maybe before we started to record... I am a very private person. I am shy to the point of petrification when I'm around people I don't know. And therefore, I had to literally reinvent myself in order to do this. Go to California and talk to people I'd never met before. I became an actor, and there's no other way around it. I was acting every single time I had to approach people I didn't know. I walked onto the set of, uh, again, I'm going to make references you've never heard of. The first set I ever got on was a universal show called Del Vecchio. I can't even tell you who was in it now. Anybody ever heard of Kojak? Yes. Okay, I was on the set of Kojak for a day. McLeod? Remember McLeod? No. Dennis Weaver. Anyway, I was on the set of McLeod for a couple of days. Then... I'm not sure whether there was anything else in between, but then I managed to get myself over to Starsky and Hutch. And still, 
I had to keep my hands in my pockets so that they wouldn't see I was shaking. And I had to force myself to talk to people. You can't imagine what was what my stomach was doing when David came off the set and sat with me. And I showed him my portfolio, the work I'd done, the commissions I'd done, my idea of possibly moving to California and setting up my leading studio. He was so kind, and he seemed truly interested. He gave me his agent's name and direct phone number so that in case I did come out to California, I could get in touch with David because he said he really would like to commission a weaving. He didn't have to do that. He really didn't. It was just the kindest thing I'd ever encountered. Thankfully, I was taken under the wing of Jerry Leach, who was the hairdresser, seasons one and two. And she and I, for some reason, just clicked. I love Jerry. I, I lost her in 2003. I'm but sorry. But until then... Until then, she was she was my best friend in California. We 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 got together so many times, even after the show was off the air. And and I just loved Jerry. I loved her. But she took me under her wing, and she she told me the protocols of being around a hot set. You never try and catch the eye of one of the actors, either before or during or after filming. Never. You try not to intrude on anyone who's going on or off a hot set. Um, because remember, I was there on sufferance. I didn't have any real reason to be there. They could have thrown me off at any moment. And I just wanted to I just wanted to be there and absorb what was coming off these two guys, the fact that they they were each other's best friend. And it was uh, I'll throw in a little aside here you might enjoy. The other sets I've been on, Del Vecchio and Kojak and McLeod and whatever. Every time the director would call, cut, print, new setup, the actors would scurry off in all directions. Somebody would go over and make a phone call. Somebody would go over and interview with TV Guide. Somebody would split for their motorhome. Whenever anybody on the set of Starsky and Hutch called, cut, print, new setup, Paul and David stayed together. They went off the hot set and sat down, find somewhere to sit down talk about the next uh, scene, uh, maybe read through the next script. But they stayed together. I'd never seen that before. And it just reinforced the feeling that I had gotten from the pilot. They really cared about each other. And that's what I was there to absorb. That's all I wanted to absorb. I I never tried to be good friends with them. I just wanted to watch. So I did for three years. Uh, Yeah, Um, and that was serendipitous as well. When I went out to California to do my trying to figure out whether this was something I really wanted to do, a friend of mine had said, hey, that's cool. Stay with my friends, Joan and Sherry. They'll love to have you. I said, Peter, I've never met these people. Here's their phone number. Call them. You'll like them. Well, it turned out that the Joan of Joan and Jerry was Joan Pierce, who was the senior research associate at DeForest Research. And when I went out and stayed with them, we got along beautifully. When I moved to California, I found an apartment just down the hill from them. And Joan said, listen, until you get your weaving going, we need some help at DeForest. Come to work for us. And if you do, I'll let you do Starsky and Hutch. (laughs) Guess what? (laughs) I said yes. So that was truly serendipitous. I, I had no expectation of being able to get that close to the show when I moved. 
but I was obsessed with doing it, so maybe the fates just fell my way. And that's how I got to work on Starsky and Hutch. And what would a typical work day look like? A work day? Yep. Joan would walk down the hill, and I would meet her out on Beechwood Canyon, and we would walk down to Paramount Studios, because that's where DeForest Research was housed. Eight o'clock. And I would spend the day researching the scripts that I had read the night before. There was never enough time during the day to read the scripts that I would have to read and then do the research for. So I ended up having to take them home at night and read them at night. And then during the day, I would do the research, check the names. I have explained, I think, somewhere before. The only one I can bring to mind immediately was the doctor, the evil doctor in Murder Ward. I have no memory of what the script said his name was going to be. But whatever it was, there was a real doctor, one single doctor in the United States. He didn't live in California, but he was somewhere in the United States, and he was a physician. And he had that exact name. So I had to tell the production company, this name is not clear. It identifies a real person. And I came up with, uh, I think, three, three or four alternate fictitious names. And they chose Matwick. So that was my basic job for DeForest, was keeping the production company, whatever production company it was, from being sued. Because in, in television and also feature films, if you're talking about a real person, then you have to get all the facts correct. If you're talking about fictitious people, you can't have the references or the names you use identify real people. So it's kind of a, it's complicated. And at the time, believe it or not, this was long before computers <laughs> and Google and all that good stuff, all that online sources you can check now. We had telephone books and we had volumes like Who's Who, three or four volumes of Who's Who. We had Brett's Peerage. If anybody knows what Brett's Peerage is. We had to <laughs> physically check sources. And then, wait for it. We typed our reports on Selectrix, seven copies of Selectrix. And if when you made a typo, you had to white everything out and go back and do it again. Oh, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-technology, and now you know why I'm not a techie. <laughs> was it particularly satisfying to know that uh, a name that you'd invented wound up being used in the show? I always got a little tickle out of it. Um... It was fun to know that I came up with Matt Wick, and that was, I, I can't even remember what other choices I gave them, but they liked Matt, or they didn't like it. Because a producer never wants to, especially if he's the writer, never wants to know that a name he came up with can't be used. Mm. They don't want to hear that. So at least they selected Matt Wick. Uh, I'll give you one other aside here. I did the research on the pilot of Dallas. Oh. Anybody remember Dallas? Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. Well, it turned out there was one J.R. Ewing in Dallas. <laughs> Lots of possibilities. There was John Robert. There was Jeremy Richard. There was just all kinds of possibilities. But there was only one exact listing for initials only, J.R. Ewing. So I had to tell the production company, guys, this really isn't a good idea. And if you want to do this, get in touch with the man and buy the rights to his name. Uh, they don't want to do that. And they didn't want, they would not. They categorically refused to change the name. Because I think one of the producers was the writer. 
Mm-hmm. And he just had it in his mind that he was going to use J.R. Ewing, come what may. I have no idea whether the real J.R. Ewing got in touch with them and got paid off or whether he just liked the idea of his friends coming to him saying, hey, look at you, it's J.R. Ewing. <laughs> <laughs> All kinds of things like that went on. It was an interesting job, but it was frustrating because the level of writing was wretched, just wretched. Some of the scripts came across my desk that I would not have turned in as a first month writing project. It was just, they were just awful, but they got made. I knew if they were coming across my desk, they were going to get made. So that was kind of frustrating. That does sound frustrating. It was, yeah. So uh, can you tell us some notable times that you were able to uh, watch some filming? Yeah, a couple of times. Um, I didn't get out there as often as my recollections probably gave the impression that I did. But one of my most treasured memories is the day I ended up on the location, and it was a practical location at that. Most of them weren't. For Iron Mike, and I'm sure we all remember the kitchen scene where Starsky and Hutch get trapped behind the doors with the waiters in and out and in and out. Mm-hmm. And they ended up against each other behind the door. And all <laughs> I can t- normally I made it a point to stay away from hot sets because as I said before, I didn't want to catch anybody's eye. I didn't want to be asked to leave the set. But somehow that day I ended up on top of a counter at the very back wall of the kitchen. And I was probably about, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 feet away from where the action was happening through the doorway. And I remember crouching there watching the director and Paul and David begin to choreograph a scene where they were going to see Iron Mike through the window and then they were going to be trapped behind the door when the waiter came through. And the more outrageous they seemed to get with smashing them together behind the door, the the louder everybody laughed. They had more fun with that scene than I than I ever saw them have with any other scene that I ever saw them film. It just evolved, if you will, from the director and Paul and David playing with the idea of catching them behind the door. And it, it just kind of grew like Popsy. It growed. What amazed me was they ever got any foot of film on film that didn't include laughter. Because the boys were cracked up, the director was cracked up, the crew was laughing, which really ruins a take. But that was just, that was fun. You mentioned, that was really fun. Uh, you mentioned in one of your recollections that you got to see some behind the scenes of editing. Can you talk a bit yeah. about that? Well, I, I read over it just this morning to see if I had anything besides what I wanted to say on that. And... There isn't really much more other than the fact that, bless their hearts, they saved film for me. I would go over, and once in a while, Asa would holler out the, his office door and say, I got some boxes for you. Mm-hmm. And what he had done was save clips and whole scenes that got printed but didn't get used. And so I ended up with at least a dozen film boxes full of clips that some of them never made it to the air. And I had um, my friend Kay and I, when we were doing our concordance, writing our concordance for the series, and we would go through these clips frame by frame and pull out some and have them blown up. We had a whole loose-leaf binder with 
probably hundreds of three by five film clips, some nobody had ever seen before. And that was a treasure. That was a real treasure. But the other times, I'd just hang over their shoulders and watch. And my two favorite memories of that were when Asa called me in to watch the very first shot of Deck Watch, when the script had called for stock footage, dock, night. And Paul had instead had taken an entire crew down to the docks, plus the guest star, and had filmed that absolutely magical opening shot of Deck Watch. The next time you watch that episode, pay attention to that opening shot. It's genius. I absolutely agree. Like, I was really impressed with that shot when um, I first watched the episode. It was just like, ooh, this is really cool with the long shot there. I knew nothing and still know nothing about film noir, but as I was told, that is typical film noir. And I think Paul set the stage for the next hour of menace with that opening shot. No way in the world would that episode have had the impact it did if he had gone with stock footage. There's no way. That is a brilliant opening sequence. And Asa didn't call me in the in his office to help with editing or anything that night. He just wanted to crow. He loved Paul. <laughs> oh, he really did. Um, the other editing, uh, I think you mentioned in our emails, Monica, you wanted to know more about when my friend Rita and I were called down to KTTV to help their editor after the series went to syndication. Yes, I'd like to and, know more about that. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that when a show goes to syndication, the local editor has to take out as much as five minutes of the, seri- of the episode because they have to make room for all their extra local commercials. And the editor that was trying to work on Starsky and Hutch when it initially went to syndication had never watched the show. So he was a friend of my friend Rita's, and he called Rita and he said, Help! I don't know this show. I don't know what I can take out and what I shouldn't. And as I remember, Rita and I would go down once a week, and we would watch with him and try and figure out where we could slice five minutes out of each episode. It was tough because you might think you could take uh, this whole scene out. But when you think about later on down the series, no, wait a minute, wait, wait, we can't take this out because it means something later on. I can't think of any specific instances right now where that would have been the case. But the other thing you have to think about when you're editing is the music or the sound is carried on the edge of the film. So the music is part of the footage. And you can't simply go in and whack out 15 seconds worth of footage if it interrupts the music, because that just screws everything up. So there's a lot to be considered. I had never thought about it until he called and brought us down there and said, this is what I'm facing. How do I do this? So it was challenging and interesting. I think, though, I can't recall us doing it more than about half a season, because I think he got sped up with how picky we were. (laughs) No, no, you can't take that. No. (laughs) I think we were driving him crazy, actually. (laughs) So we didn't get that. We didn't have that job very long. And we were totally volunteers, by the way. Uh, (laughs) But it was fun. Yeah, I have to admit that if, 
if someone asked me to help cut out five minutes from a beloved TV show episode, I would have a hard time and I would be very picky. <laughs> yeah. He knew that we were fans. I don't think he knew we were fanatics. Right. <laughs> he learned. <laughs> but these days, I don't even watch when it's on one of the subsidiary networks like TNT, if it's on TNT or, or wherever it shows up. I don't watch them simply because I don't want to say, oh, wait, you cut that out, you turkeys. <laughs> because I would know. I knew every frame of that series at one point. I don't know it as well now, but I did at the time. Well, good thing that we have DVDs now, so. <laughs> yeah, it is. Although the DVDs, as I think it's become public knowledge, the DVDs are not completely uncut. Um, there is that one, I can think right off the top of my head, of the scene in, uh-oh, mine just went blank. Survival? Um, no. Okay, because no, that's... No, uh, is, is there a missing scene in Survival? Yeah, I've seen people have posted a video where Starsky is in the elevator with the lawyer and there's a longer version uh, that's not on the DVD. Interesting. Okay. I can't bring that to mind as, um, it's as not, edited out. Yeah, it's not longer by a whole lot. It's like one uh -huh. line of dialogue got cut uh, for the DVD version. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's another obvious, if you're looking for it, bad cut in, of all places, Jillian. Have you ever noticed that when Starsky goes to her apartment and has the face down with her, she is at one point leaning against the back of the sofa and Starsky's near the end table. And in the next cut, she is kneeling on the ottomans in the middle of the elaborate sofa system with a pillow clutched to her chest. You never noticed that, did you? Not particularly, there a, no. There is, a, there is a section missing. And also, when she's in the center of that sofa complex, she has tears in her eyes, which she doesn't have in the cut before that. So somewhere they cut out, and I don't have my script anymore to figure out what they cut, but somewhere she goes from leaning against the back of the sofa to walking around the sofa and is kneeling on the ottoman. And she's got tears in her eyes. And yeah. this is where I wanted to go back and find out what they cut. But yeah. this was this was never aired. Whatever was cut was never aired. It just it went on the air that way. And whether they decided they were running fifteen seconds long, that often happens in film. You get to the final cut and you're fifteen seconds too long, so something has to go. I don't know what the situation was where that scene got axed out of Jillian, but I sure would like to find out where it went. Anyway, the one I was thinking of, okay, help me guys, um, Starcy's cab driver. And I, I know what one you're talking about. I don't remember the name. Quadromania. I don't either. Oh, thank you. Quadromania. What is it? Yes. Um, one of the episodes I try and forget. <laughs> um, but, and somebody asked me, why did it seem like Paul was sleepwalking through that episode. Keep in mind, he had Deckbotch to direct next. And while these guys were shooting five days a week, 18 hours a day, if they were to direct the next episode, they had to do it on their own time. They had to do all the prep 
casting, location, um, choices, script changes, lighting. They had to do all of that on their own time because once they wrapped Quadromania, he went right into directing Deckwatch. So it didn't surprise me that he seemed to walk through Quadromania, but it's still, it's not my favorite episode. But there is a, a cut, a clip, where the bad guy, Lynch, is it Richard Lynch? Anyway, he smashes Starsky's head against the window of his cab. And we've got a small, a very brief cut of Starsky's head with blood on his cap leaning against that window. And I don't think that is in the DVD. I think that scene of, and this, whoever cut it, didn't realize that that scene is needed in order to explain why Starsky is so out of it in the following sequence when he's walking down the alley and and is so dazed. You're you're right. When I first watched Quadromania, I think I turned to Rachel or Jen and said, did he hit his head? He's stumbling around like he's concussed, but we didn't see it. Exactly. Well, it was in the original, but somehow for the DVD, it's missing. So I have no, I have no explanation for that because I was, I have long out of the business when the series made the transition from videotape to DVD. So I have no idea what happened with that and whether or not there are niggling little missing snippets from other episodes too. Huh. Huh. Anyway. That's a great example. Well, it's the one that comes to mind. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I know, I know that I've heard about it from too many places not to suspect it. So what else can I tell you? <laughs> uh, well, I'm thinking, Rachel, did you have a copy of the script of Jillian? I actually do, so I'll have to check that out. Um, yes. Do. Put the, put the DVD on and read through your script while it's going and figure out what they cut. That does sound like a fun Cause activity. Because something's missing. And that is one of my favorite scenes in the entire show, so I definitely need oh, to get on that. Oh, of course. It's it's riveting. It's absolutely riveting on both their parts. Mm-hmm. The, the acting that both Paul and Karen did was amazing in that show, I think. Mm-hmm. They never got any acclaim for it, but it was amazing. How did you discover that other people were such fans of Starsky and Hutch still and online fandom? Back in 2014, well, after the show was canceled, I had a friend, a very good friend of mine, who lived in Ventura, and she and I spent the next three, three and a half years um, compiling what we only semi-humorously called our concordance of repeated touches, phrases, looks, wardrobe, and inconsistencies. We, we weren't completely oblivious of the mistakes. And at least every other week, I would drive up to Ventura or she would come down to Hollywood and we would watch the episodes and we'd make notes. And every time we'd come along and find a new something that we wanted to write down, then we have to, wait a minute, have we missed this in earlier episodes? We got to start over. So in those three and a half years, we only got through the first season and a half because we were forever having to start over. And therefore, I know I have seen first season episodes at least a dozen times and others not quite so often. But that 
that was fun. That was a lot of fun. But after that, I completely lost track of everything to do with Starsky and Hutch for over 30 years. I got married. I had other things to do. And I just figured it had sailed off into oblivion like every other series ever had. And then in 2014, I had a a health wake up and I started going through my closets and everything that I owned and trying to figure out what I was going to do with stuff. And I found a box of my scripts, the scripts that I had written, spec scripts for Starsky and Hutch. And my friend, who was also my agent manager, she said, I can't do anything with those. I'll take your movie scripts, but see if there's any place online that you can post or or do something with your Starsky and Hutch scripts. So I googled Starsky and Hutch and not only found out, discovered, if you will, that Paul and David were still alive. I didn't even know that. But that the show was still popular and that there were websites out there devoted to Starsky and Hutch. I had no idea. So I, I wrote to Flamingo on the archive and told her who I was and that I would, I would love to be able to post some of the spec scripts that I had written. And she wrote back, and I think she was a little skeptical in the beginning, but she encouraged me to write, and I started posting my recollections and then a couple of the early scripts that I turned into stories on her site. And then Dawn invited me to join the 911, the Starsky and Hutch 911 community and try my hand at short stories responding to challenges, 20-minute challenges. You guys familiar with the 911 site? Yes, I wasn't ever active on it, but I've looked through the posts on it. Mm-hmm. It's not as active now. Um, I don't know whether a lot of the fans have just, or whether they found other things to do with their lives. The 911 is not nearly as active as it used to be, but I tried to respond to every challenge, the 20-minute challenges, and then the, just give us a story about wardrobe, write us a story that we consider me or the, write a story from a point of view that the reader has to decide who's thinking or talking. You don't identify the point of view. That was challenging. And then Hardboiled Baby invited me to join the Me and the 100 site, and I found I love the format of Drabble. It's very challenging to write a story in 100 words. I found I loved it. I really did. And from 2014 through now, I've been a big, I've been very involved in Starsky and Hutch fandom and fan fiction. But I was out of it for 35 years. Longer than you ladies have been alive. (laughs) Yeah. Five a little bit. Think about it that way. I was out of it for years. Wow. Well, I'm glad you were able to finally discover the the community and and find out how much longevity this series has had. That's what I find truly amazing. That not only has it lived, but people still understand what what they showed us, which I think I was telling you the other day, Monica, you can't 
you guys who weren't there in the 70s in front of your televisions seeing this for the first time two guys who were able to depend on each other support each other love each other we'd never seen that before it was earth-shattering groundbreaking whatever you want to call it never been done before and i'm i'm sorry you missed out because it was it was like nothing it can't be recaptured you can't go back and do something again but i don't know it was it was neat but i'm i'm really encouraged that so many new fans are coming into the fandom because it's worthwhile and this show was worthwhile it's worth keeping alive and perpetuating and i'm thrilled that the events where david and paul and antonio are showing up and enjoying themselves and the fans are just delirious this is good stuff you and i monica were talking the other day about something and i just want to throw this out there and if it gets edited out it's okay there is a scene and you were going to ask if rachel could put it up as a spill but for those listening coffin for starsky just came out of the blue and blew me away and as i said when kay and i were doing our concordance i guess we watched that episode a dozen times and there is something in it that i had never noticed before until two years ago when another friend and i were watching it and i stopped her and i said wait stop hold it go back it's the scene outside of janos's studio where Starsky does, does his glass half empty, glass half full speech. Do you know that one I mean, guys? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. The next time you watch it, put it on slow-mo and realize that behind Starsky on the wall is a shadow, a shadow of a person. And that person just stands there and raises his right hand and touches the bottom of his nose. This is a signature move from David. So that shadow on the wall is David. He's not in the scene. He's not in the frame. doesn't have a word of dialogue, but he's standing there. And then I have to point out to you that the logistics of this scene are such that he shouldn't have been there because the scene is very small, very tightly compacted. There are nine people and a whole bunch of monstrous equipment collected directly in front of Starsky. And one extra person standing there at the edge would have been difficult to maneuver around. And I'm sure the director said, get out of here, David. You're not in the scene. Go away. But he didn't go away. He stood there in moral support of his best friend. And I can just hear him thinking to my, I'm, I'm hearing Hutch now. As he's saying to my, he's thinking to himself, hey, buddy, even though I'm not in the shot, I'm here for you. I've got your back. And this, according to Jerry, she told me so many things about first season when I wasn't there yet. She said they, even if they weren't on the call sheet, meaning they should have the day off and go play, that they would show up just to be moral support, to back each other up, to be there for each other. This was the closest friendship any of us is ever going to see. And that tiny little fragment of a scene means so much more to me now than it ever did the first few dozen times I saw it. Every time I watch the show now, I I freeze frame that scene. And I hope everybody that listens will go and watch that episode and see that shadow on the wall. It's David. 
It's certainly a nice idea to be able to catch something new when you watch an episode you've seen multiple times. Yeah. yeah I do that a lot, though, in Starsky and Hutch. Believe me, I've, as many times as I've seen it, I see something new so many times. It's, a, it's the depth. And here you have to understand, too, the producers didn't want to see this. They just wanted to five days of shooting, finish the show, put it on the air, moving on to the next one. And David and Paul were doing their level best to try and make each episode the best they could. I have no idea what happened when they got the script for Dandruff. I've read some interesting <laughs> fanfic uh, that had him stalking off, and, and I just I wasn't there for any of the shooting of Dandruff. I, I avoided it, having had to read the script. Um, I think it probably end up, ended up with teeth marks on the edge of it, too. I hated it so much. Anyway. Those um, must have been some interesting names to have to clear for Dandruff. <laughs> Nah, I can't even think of anything from Dandruff. <laughs> I, I really can't. That was the one with Mr. Tyrone and Mr. Marlene. Yes, yep. yes. That's what I was thinking of, of, of you having to, to do the work to clear names for, <laughs> for Mr. Tyrone yeah. and Mr. Marlene. There were very few sources, believe it or not, that I could check for that. <laughs> for something like um, a hairdresser's nom de plume, if you will. And I have no memory, quite literally, no memory of doing the research on that show and finding, trying to find out whether or not Mr. Marlene and Mr. Tyrone would clear as hairdressers. I just don't bring anything back to mind. I think I shoveled it into the deepest part of my memory. I don't blame you for blocking it out. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Oh, dear. I don't know whether they were trying for bizarre levity. I think In they the were trying for, like, a Pink Panther-type uh, episode or homage. It was very, like, typical farce, but very weird tonally for that show. Yeah, um, it's like, uh, where did this come from? <laughs> I, I, it's on, well, I can not like Huggy Bear and the Turkey, because Huggy Bear and the Turkey was designed as a spinoff. And it was going to take Antonio and this other clown into their own series. But it was it was poorly imagined. It was poorly written. It was, I don't think there's a single redeeming feature in Huggy Bear and the Turkey. So of course it didn't fly. <laughs> well, I see what you did there. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a couple more questions about your own writing. Are there uh-huh. are there any stories of your own that you're most proud of? You asked me that the other day, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And I have to say that I really love all my stories, or I wouldn't post them, um, but in thinking back, I can probably say one of my recent ones, A Devious Mind, uh, I like a whole bunch. For one thing, going from a 100-word drabble to a 70,000-word backstory was challenging. I remember that one. I liked it quite a bit, and I especially liked uh, the villain that you created for it. When uh, uh, people good, write good. interesting, really, really horrible villains, <laughs> and then have a lot of point of view uh, scenes from that villain's point of view, I always think that's really fun in stories. Yeah, well, that one just kind of evolved. I started out with the drabble of it's over, pretty face. Um, you're mine now, and 
Uh, I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't read it, but I worked from that drabble and then went back and evolved the story for it. I'm very proud of that story. I liked the way I kept Hutch involved. I didn't let him give it up. Uh, I kept Starsky digging and refusing to give up. And I kept all the other characters involved, Dobie and Simmons and Babcock and Minnie. I wanted them all involved in this really stressful situation for Hutch. But I, and the other thing I'm proud of, I managed not to hurt either one of them very badly. I know that hurt comfort is the biggest thing in fandom, and I do a lot of it myself. But I really wanted to get her through that one without major injury, and I did it. I managed to do it. <laughs> I like that. Um, I'm also fond of Miami Lines, another one that came from a drabble. I like New York Calling, and I, I really like one that hasn't gotten any kind of following at all. It's called individuality. And I don't know whether it hasn't gotten a following because I had to identify it as AU. And I know a lot of people don't like AU or they avoid it. And it really isn't. It's not AU, and meaning they're not knights in shining armor. They're not aliens. They're not angels. They're not, it's not really AU. It takes Starsky and Hutch as their regular characters, into from 1988, when the story is supposedly set, into 2033. So that part of it is AU. It's a future story. But I like that story, just in case anybody wants to go back and find it and read it. I like it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, also, as a, I'll throw it out as a challenge for anybody who reads it, that story was spawned by one sentence. Write to me and tell me what you think the sentence was. <laughs> and on that note, ladies, we've almost run the hour, haven't we? We have. I think we have, yeah. This might be a good natural ending point. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to hear all these stories from you. Yes, thank you so much for sharing, especially I know you, you said you were shy and that this could be uh, difficult, but you've done a, a wonderful job of... of uh, telling these stories and talking to us. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's My been, pleasure. It's been great getting sort of a peek behind the curtain on Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, it was possibly, oh, no, not possibly, but most likely the best four years of my life. So um, on that note, I will thank you ladies very much for the opportunity. It has been a joy. And now I will go and shake. Oh. <laughs> Treat yourself to something nice. Yes, That's what I say. Definitely. Yeah, okay. That sounds good. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. If you want to uh, send us an email, you can reach us at meandtheand3 at gmail.com. You can find us on our Twitter at me and... I'm sorry. I've, it's been so long. <laughs> at me the 3 or you can go to our website at uh, meandtheand3.com. Thank you for listening.
that's a wrap.